And I would recommend to no one to move during a global pandemic. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. I first met Taylor Barbary three or four years ago when he spoke at the University of Minnesota Morris. I can't remember the topic of his lecture, but I clearly remember thinking something to the effect of, wow, this guy's like the Mark Taylor of the early 20th century. I've gotten to know Taylor better over the intervening years, and I can confirm that my initial impression of him is correct. Taylor is very much a sort of Mark Twain for this moment in time, where the United States is wrestling with addressing climate change, LGBT rights, racism, and indigenous sovereignty. Taylor is a poet, essayist, and storyteller who, through autobiography, where autobiography thinly veiled through fiction, translates his experiences growing up gay in North Dakota with a chronic illness into commentary about extractive industries, discrimination, and their harms. In this episode, I'm going to play the first 24 or so minutes of our conversation largely uncut. When I asked Taylor to introduce himself to the audience of Just Sustainability, it led to a wonderful conversation about how we both grew up in areas where oil is the primary economic driver, and how that fact shaped how each of us view, understand, and engage with the world. Here's that conversation. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Clevin. <laughs> yeah, it's always a little weird, right? We for a bit. It's like, okay, we're going to record and then act like we're, you know, having a, a brand new conversation. Just picked up the phone. Yes. Yeah. Uh, hi. So how have you been? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Peachy keen in the swampy, sweaty south, you know? Yeah, how is it? How is moving from... Uh, you were in the Midwest previously, right? Like, I don't exactly re- remember most immediately. Where- no, you were in the West Coast, weren't you? No, no I was, I, well, I've been all over. <laughs> but it's, I, when you and I met, I was living in Iowa for grad school. And then yes. I had moved to teach for a year in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And then most recently, I've been teaching for two years in the uh, Finger Lakes of New York State. So I, Right. moved and I would recommend to no one to move during a global pandemic. Um, <laughs> uh, five, five days after the murder of George Floyd, when like Atlanta was, uh, you know, there uh, cities were burning the town. I moved yeah. to Spartanburg, South Carolina had a curfew the day I arrived. And um, I drove like a bat out of hell from the finger lights down to Spartanburg for, you know, a tenure track job. And so I had been living out on the, East Coast uh, for the past three years, teaching yeah. in, in, in gigs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember it was some coast. I couldn't remember which right. one. No, no, exactly. Yeah. We'll get it one 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 out of two. You know, you have a 50-50 <laughs> shot. Yeah. And I, w- I wasn't sure which Midwestern state. For some reason, I thought it was Nebraska, but yeah, I guess Iowa. Yeah, close enough. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> exactly. One of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of those, those like, kind of squarish states that I drive through and like, I feel a little uncomfortable whenever I have to get out and go into a convenience store and everyone stares at me. Exactly. Exactly. And they're filled <laughs> with what we call the high green and the low green corn and soybeans, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, I, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I guess I, I always start like these conversations by asking uh, the guests to describe themselves, to, right? To just tell the audience what they want about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like not necessarily like, you know, kind of that those formal bios, but just like who's Taylor Brewery in the words of Taylor Brewery. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a disturbing and wild question to ponder. <laughs> you know, I bought my own reclined chair thinking about it. I, I, I think at base, who am I? But behind the sort of bio is I. Through these times we've been living in, I have learned that I, or it has been confirmed. I shouldn't even say I've been learning. I think I've known this, but now it's confirmed. Mm -hmm. I have a very obsessive personality. And it's not so much of like, though I have been washing my hands very regularly, (laughs) as we're told. (laughs) I have not been using only fresh bars of soap, but I... um, I have found I have a very obsessive personality that at base, I, you know, if I, I only believe in binging, you know, whether that's <laughs> like the crown or that, you know, last fall, I was like, I'm going to master making Cocovan. And I like cooked it four times in two weeks so that I yeah. got to a level where it was like, I don't need the recipe for this. And now I have it. I maybe will never make it again, but I know how to do it. And, or, or that, oh, I'm going to listen to all nine symphonies of Dvorak, you know, in a two day period to say that I can do that, you know? So it's sort of like, I think Taylor Borbiat base is a person who just, devours things <laughs> you know it's like it's sort of like where people are like oh yeah it took me a while to read middle march i'm like yeah i read it in like four days you know it's yeah. one of those things it's like i will sacrifice my life in the pursuit of certain things yeah. but i i think that also spurs me into other areas of who i am that at base it's it's not only in service of knowledge and knowing it's that I think before we started recording something we were talking about too of of a person only has so much time and can only get so much out of life. I don't mean that in a capitalistic sense, but that it it's more like there's a big wide world and the one of the perks of the technological age we live in is there's so many recordings and so many things on the internet that I can be using my time to be exposed to mm-hmm. places and people I might otherwise not, you know, in my day-to-day life. And I think at base, that's what drives me is that Taylor Brorby, hopefully at his best, is an insanely curious, mm-hmm. highly opinionated little Viking. You know, that's, <laughs> that's like... You know, it's not without judgment right. or without saying like, like I'm not one of these like, enlightened humans of just saying yeah i'm open to everything it's more through the filters of my life and and being challenged and wanting that and also certain things confirmed or disabused but i i think it's a insatiable curiosity is what i hope i am at base and at my best i i feel that i spent a lot of my life just sort of ruining the fact that I can't do everything because there's so much right. to do, so much to see, so much to listen to, so much to experience, but I have a, a fixed amount of time. And so like whenever I'm not like, right, being kind of stimulated in some novel way that I'm somehow wasting the the, the precious time I have. No, I, I so get that. And I think, you know, inherently I'm like, a tiny monomaniacal human, you know, like I, I just, I I was going to college and wanted to be a symphony conductor, only like sociopaths or symphony conductors, because you're like 
the piano isn't big enough for me. I need like a hundred people to do my bidding with this tiny stick. I'm waving through the air, you right, know, right. but then I lobbed off my left thumb and that destroyed my piano playing. And so, well, had to stumble into the English department, you know, cause music wasn't going to work out in that way. And it, it's one of those sorts of things of, I, I think for me and, and, being aware of where I come from mm. and having certain privileges in how I present, but while also coming um, up in an area that's ravaged by widespread destruction of the fossil fuel economy and, mm-hmm. and growing up in a county without a grocery store, without stoplights, you know, in a tiny 600 person town of, of knowing that there was this big world out there that wasn't, in the world I was living in. I think that has fueled part of this is that, Mm -hmm. you know, when I'm in New York city, I'm going to the museum of modern art or I'm, I'm going to central park or I'm getting really incredible takeout because none of that was available. It turns out in center North Dakota. and, And so I think there's part maybe of a personality where I don't know if it's so black and white, but you either can be turned off from that wider world and sort of retreat into your turtle shell, or you can be the turtle that's like wandering through the marshland and checking out the cattails and seeing what's over here and there, you know, and I want to be that turtle rather than the other. Right. The turtle that that gets rescued on the highway because uh, he decides to like see what's on the other side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're like, I heard there was a pond in a faraway land across (laughs) this way, you know, I'm going there. Yes. Um, uh, So that actually leads me to like one of the questions I want to talk to you about. Right. So like, I don't know, even before we were recording, we were talking about like, right commonalities that we had between us and you've been just talking about growing up in the oil patch uh, and how that's uh-huh. shaped sort of your curiosity and your desire to experience things but i i'm curious right like <clears throat> having shared the experience and thinking that growing up in an oil patch shaped the way i thought about like sustainability and equity more broadly i'm curious how it how you think it might have shaped the way you've thought about it right growing up in a place where you know one of those the kind of the most extractive of extractive industries is occurring and seeing those sort of environmental impacts, which are the environmental impacts that I think most people who are concerned about the environment are now wringing their hands about. Like, how do you think that shaped your work? Yeah, that that's a wonderful big question. And one I, I think about only when people ask me that type of question, because I think being a writer, I'm not sitting around and, necessarily theorizing the like why is it i do what i do i think i at base and and hopefully this doesn't come across as false humility you just kind of look at the world and go well there's no one else from my part of the world doing it so i better do it you know it's kind of like when i was in graduate school I was really frustrated that there wasn't an anthology of creative writing about hydraulic fracking, like poems and essays and stories. And I thought, well, dummy, maybe that's a cue that you should do it, you know? And if I were doing that book, I learned so much from doing that anthology and my, my, uh, own biases at that time in my life or things I had missed and would do it very differently. And I'm sure 
any other writer or thinker would say the same about any finished project, but that coming from that part of the world, you know, I wasn't this precocious kid in the way some people like to mythologize themselves. I think I Mm -hmm. looked at that landscape and, you know, I, I knew it was, I wouldn't even use the words as like eight or nine. I wouldn't necessarily be thinking oh, this is getting destroyed. It was just more like, this is what we do. Right. And like, and we also ranch here and we also farm and we also go fishing in the Missouri River and the Missouri River is bricked by coal plants as right. well, you know. But then part of that, you know, you have these little seeds that maybe you don't even you know, ask some of the questions that are blossoming in your mind of others, but you just mull them over of like, why, (laughs) why is it that the lake I grew up swimming in never freezes in winter? You know, like that's really disturbing because every lake in North Dakota freezes in winter and should. Um, But, but this one has steam snailing in the air. And I think that opened up some, deeper longer questions of eventually uh why is it we do what we do why is it happening here and not let's say in places like chicago you know or in uh new york city or that why are we not mining in those places um and i i think part of that is I'm so fascinated by my part of the world because it is my part of the world, but that to me, it seems that history is so recent there, you know, that people who look like me uh, only benefited from the Homestead Act fairly recently, you know, that my great grandparents came over from Russia. And then that asks a deeper question, if you're curious of, but there were people here before my people, And where are those people now? And where did they move? And what did they lose? And why then on childhood field trips to the Heritage Center was that the first exhibits are not only about dinosaurs, which are super cool and seeing, you know, pterodots (laughs) perched and all this and giant sloths to give you nightmares. Yeah. But then, um, you know, and I didn't even have language for this at the time because when you grow up as the dominant person in the culture in which you're raised you it it takes you longer right. to get there i think is um why are the native american exhibits all in the back corner why is one of the most important paintings that we have in this country of sitting bowl that was slashed by a winchester rifle mm-hmm. uh painted by uh catherine weldon why is that not front and center mm-hmm. why don't we talk about such things um And so that sort of cracking open, I guess, is what gets me to those ideas around what you're saying, sustainability of, you know, I grew up swimming in the second major reservoir on the Missouri River system, Lake Sakakawea, and I knew that there were towns 200 feet below me that had been flooded while I'm screaming behind the boat on an inner tube, you know, (laughs) but that, you know, I didn't know. Um, I couldn't make the leap of whose towns were that. And I thought, because again, when you're a child, you don't know, you know, your ass from your mouth right. and you're just like, well, okay. So they had to move big deal, but 
now, of course, right. I understand deeper and, and, and it reflects to not only a history of genocide, uh, uh, it, it parallels what we're experiencing with climate change, which we might right. be able to say is another addition to the history of genocide of who are the first people that are having to leave their homes are having to move. And, and in a spiritual sense, what does that do to the cosmology of people? You know, I feel that deeply of, of knowing my home bioregion so well and fearing I will never get to live there again um, just because of the life I have, you know, and there are ways that it's safe and not, but, but, to me, the issues around sustainability that you ask, it, it also m- m- put some anger in me and knowing it was happening where I live, right, right. but not other places. And that other places had more than the place that I grew up. And there was, I would say, a type of resentment. <laughs> Why didn't I grow up in a town with an incredible art museum? Why is it that what my little town was providing um, was being sent away, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and yet, uh, you know, I grew up going to a grocery store before it went out of business where the iceberg lettuce arrived already <laughs> wilted, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like, because yeah. we were the last stop for food, you know, so I think, and my sustainability is so much less around, um, Oh, let me know the birds and the bees, though that can be uh, flowers, you know, different flora and fauna, though that can be important, of course. It's really related to politics and economics when it comes down. That's like, and that's kind of weird for me to think about because I'm not trained in those fields. But because of the stories that have happened, you know, Native Americans, um, how they cultivated the Northern Great Plains create an incredible lush garden uh, that was harvested very quickly by settler colonialism, Mm -hmm. you know, and destroyed and then pillaged. That's an economic exchange. Mm -hmm. That's a political exchange. That's a subjugation. And, uh, and those are the bigger stories around sustainability that I'm interested in. I mean, though, certainly I would say, yes, I'm interested in solar panels and wind farms and, and all of those things as well. But that I I think to your question around sustainability is I grew up in a place with a story that isn't sustainable because it's predicated on pillaging Mm -hmm. finite resources on a finite planet. Mm -hmm. And often a great disparity. Uh, While there's money to be made by the folks who are participating in that pillaging it's often like they there's a lot of costs right uh I, right sorry yeah go ahead oh, no 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 please uh i'm curious what uh, you were about to interject yeah i mean i think there are costs to uh when we're thinking about you know the least sexy fish on the north american continent as the u.s forest and game service as is the pallid sturgeon but i think it's the most incredible type of creature it's a 70 million year old creature with a walnut sized brain and because of hydroelectric power on the missouri river system it's cooled the water because it's pulled from these deep reservoirs and the pallid sturgeon needs warm water to thrive but i i think of the 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 cost not only 
to people who look like me and people who are different from me. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's the cost amongst our relations yeah. to place, yes. you know, and our our sense of, uh, as Wendell Berry sort of says, every precious thing, you know, um, or as Yeats says, you know, things reveal themselves passing away and we are living in a time of great passing away yes. if we're paying attention and great heartbreak and great grief. And I, I think too, that's related to your question around sustainability because to live in a perpetual state of grief yes. is not sustainable to the human spirit. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, cause I think, I think sometimes there's this belief that folks who are, you know, folks in West Virginia who are supporting coal mines or folks in the Dakotas or like, you know, Northern Alberta, where I'm from, who are supporting the oil industry, that they somehow don't care about the land. They don't care about one another or they don't care about, you know, the other folks who are being impacted by their actions. But I don't find that to be true. I find that they do care. I mean, right. Like the people I grew up with tend to love the outdoors. They love where they're from. They love sort of the natural beauty of Northern Alberta. Uh, they're not horrible people. They care about, you know, uh, the first nation folks that are being impacted, but then they have to like have this internal struggle about knowing that their livelihood depends on these right. sort of harms. And then I think sometimes that's what adds to, uh, the resistance to change, right? This, there's this sort of deeply felt tension where they want to be good, but at the same time, they're faced with the knowledge that they would have to make very big sacrifices to do the right thing. And when they get pushed on it, right, it, it, it I think it, it leads to that sort of cognitive dissonance, which makes it, makes them defensive. I, I feel this on a deep level, you know, I feel that I'm living these sort of two lives of the person who's the first in line to critique where I come from and right. the first in line to defend it, you right, know, right. realizing um, people are both simultaneously victims and creating victims right. where I'm from of um and we see this in all phases of life, you know, I mean, we see this in our, our shared professions and academe. People are very hesitant to criticize these systems because at the end of the day, we need to pay our bills and right. put food on the table and things like this. Uh, and it's very threatening to criticize in these places, the monoculture that is providing jobs, whether right. it be oil or coal. So, you know, where I, come from the coal-fired power plant where my mother worked her entire career, mm-hmm. if you're hell-bent like I am on that shutting down and going away, uh, you know, you're not going to be a person working at that coal mine who wants that to happen. Right. You know, because you've also been sold a list of goods that's only one item long, coal right. or oil, you know, and and that too, I think creates this sort of provincial view from maybe people who don't live in those places of, well, people aren't creative there. It's that the right. system of economics has not allowed, um, I mean, in all, in, in many ways of life, we don't have economics that reflect nature, which would mean we would have a diversity in the ways we get to exist right. in a particular place. And uh, it, it's so true what you're saying. I mean, in fact, many of the people I grew up with uh, on a day-to-day way probably live 
more in a right relation because they actually do go hunting, right? You know, and they they you know those deer are going to last them. They're they're having a lower carbon footprint with right. one bullet or arrow that it takes to slay that animal than you know me going to Whole Foods and getting my like organic grass fed beef that shipped in from California, you know, or somewhere, you know, but, but, but those are the complicated things of the system of how do we, how do we hold it all in our minds, Clement, of saying, we know coal, oil, natural gas have to go away. Like it's, it's just settled. We know this. Right, right. Um, and to also uh, not sacrifice humans who have made their living by which I mean the actual workers, you know, I I'm all for bringing back the guillotine and heads on spikes for CEOs and stuff. You know, it's just like, let's get a little medieval here to like create a little, you know, a little, a little terror in the upper classes to you know, bring them back to earth. Right. Literally. Yeah. yeah, you yeah. Know, as Bezos is the outer reaches, but, but I think that's the hard thing is it's so easy it's like what we're talking about with climate change. Well, why don't you just move? Right. Well, that in, that means you have the capital to move. It means you even want to move. It means you have the skills to change careers. It also means you're, you would just be willing to sacrifice a place that hypothetically means a lot to you. We've reached a good place to end this episode. As a bit of review, it struck me that several interesting themes arose when I asked Taylor to introduce himself. First of all, there's the theme of curiosity and a love of difference that arose from growing up in a rural place. Taylor also discussed how reflection upon the history of the land he grew up on and a critical examination of the assumptions that he was educated with informs him regarding the sorts of injustices and inequalities that he writes about. Finally, Taylor and I both discussed our observations growing up in oil towns and our impressions about some of the tensions experienced by folks whose livelihoods are dependent on extractive and often exploitative industries. Please join me again for the next episode of Just Sustainability, when we'll return to my conversation with Taylor. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.